Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fourth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the rise of pseudoscience, the ethics of spying, the future of liberalism, the trustworthiness of science, the meaning of the soul, the origins of religion, and the reason why we're in this whole global mess in the first place. There's a famous and much-quoted statement from the author G.K. Chesterton to the effect that when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing, he believes in anything. It's tempting to adopt and adapt this for realms beyond the religious. Science, for example. People who stop believing in, or at least become highly sceptical about, established mainstream science don't go on to believe in nothing. They believe in any old nonsense. And there's quite a lot of nonsense flying about today. Astrology, anti-vaxxers, young earth creationists, flat earthers and many more. They're hardly new. Indeed, pseudoscience, as it's known, has been with us as long as we've had science. The difference today is that because science has such authority in society, pseudosciences are almost encouraged to proliferate. After all, if you can capture some of the reflected glory of science itself, your ideas will always be taken more seriously. Where then is the boundary? What separates science from pseudoscience or from non-science? And what, if anything, can we do about it? That's the topic of a new book by Michael Gordon, Rosengarten Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at Princeton University, which is entitled On the Fringe, Where Science Meets Pseudoscience. Michael, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, we're going to be talking about the difference between science and pseudoscience. And and the obvious place to start that kind of conversation would be to ask you to define what science is and what pseudoscience is. So actually, I'm going to start by asking you just to give me some examples of what you mean by pseudoscience. This is a great question. And the whole book is wrestling with this. I will say that even though I wrote this book about the differences between science and pseudoscience, I don't think it's my job as a historian to pick out this is a pseudoscience, this isn't a pseudoscience, and sort that. I am not the referee of this game. There are referees for this, and those referees tend to be professional scientists who are credentialed however society chooses to do that in their domain. So speaking at the present moment, I would say things that are generally considered by the majority of the scientific community to be pseudoscientific are astrology, alchemy, various forms of parapsychology, uh, that is extrasensory perception, spoon bending with your mind. There are a bunch of others, belief that the earth is flat, the belief that the phrenological system of thought, phrenology is the idea that you can tell someone's personality by the bumps on their head. And the sort of largest of them all, especially in the U.S. context, is scientific creationism, the belief that is a scientific doctrine that the Earth was created 6,000 years ago in six literal days, and that you can prove that on the geological record. Yeah. 
Well, that's quite a good list. It's a mixed bag. So let's delve into it and get a bit more detail of the different things we'll find in there. You have a really helpful categorization in the book of different categories of pseudoscience. And the first one you talk about are vestigial sciences. And you mentioned a couple of them there. It's astrology, alchemy. These were sciences once upon a time that are no longer seen to be scientific and by far and away the most successful of those as you point out right out front is astrology yeah what happened to astrology so astrology has an extremely long tradition in fact any culture that we have written records for usually has a cosmology and something to do with the stars and usually has some belief that the stars shape or condition behavior on earth the western tradition of astrology goes back actually to Mesopotamia, but we get it through the Greeks, and then it came to us in multiple modified forms through Latin and through Arabic. But in the early modern period, say 16th century, 17th century, it's the science. It's the most prestigious science, and it meets all the criteria you would expect. It's strongly empirical. You take a lot of data about star positions constantly. It's highly mathematical as you calculate genitures, the picture of yourself, and you are constantly testing it and you're heavily supported by various princes or towns who believe they need a local astrologer to help them make decisions. So it has all of the hallmarks of a knowledge system. The analogy I make, and this is bound to irritate some people, but in many ways it's like economics today. It's incredibly mathematical, incredibly empirical, makes a lot of predictions. A lot of those predictions don't work out, but we don't necessarily think that economics should be junked, and the same was true with astrology. What happens with it are a couple of transformations. The most basic is the empirical failures of prediction do add up after a long period of time, but it takes way longer than you would think. The most important thing I think that happens is that the astronomical community fractures and changes over time. As the Copernican Doctrine, which is published in 1543, takes about a century for it to become conventional wisdom among most astronomers. As that happens, the Earth seems less special. It is rotating around the sun, and the stars and the planets don't seem to have quite the same impact on how people think about things. And over time, it just sort of wanes. So it comes back in the 1930s and it comes back to the British royals, actually. Um, there was a royal birth. A newspaper thought it would be cute if they did an astrological geniture of the new prince, and they did, and people loved it. And yeah. so it became a staple of 20th century and 21st century newspapers, but it was dormant for a long period of time. There are two actually seminal points in what you've just said. The first, which is very discombobulating for us, was just how scientific, how legitimate this seemed for such a very long time. And the second thing is that when it looked as if it had passed out of public fascination and interest, it comes back. And now you know, newspapers all the way around the world and people read them in their millions in a sense, the vestigial sciences and many of the doctrines, you can classify them in a bunch of ways. So my categories are overlapping, but a lot of them are vestigial in some form. Creationism is another one of those. It was the theory of how species were created in the early 19th century. And then it goes dormant for a while, gets revived in the 1920s, and then gets re-revived in the 1960s. And so once a theory has some scientific status at some point in the past, 
it's possible for a person to go back and say, wait, what happened to this science? Its claims seem to make a lot of sense. It had a lot of credibility. I can quote a lot of famous people who thought it was a good idea. And so they have a bank of legitimation that they can pull from the past into the present and use to promote it. There are others that kind of just stay in some form throughout. Eugenics is one that's sort of never quite gone away, but it has lost credibility with the mainstream genetic establishment, absolutely. But it's never quite gone into dormancy the way astrology did. It strikes me one of the fascinating trends with creationism in the 20th century is, say, if you look over the transcripts of the Scopes trial back in the 1920s, the Mm -hmm. creationist position is very much articulated on the basis of the authority of the Bible. Half a century later, creationism becomes creation science, and after that you have intelligent design. So you have this vestigial scientific doctrine, then trying to appropriate the authority of science in the later 20th century. Authority is very important in this, isn't it? Authority is very important, and also for creationism in particular, the legal framework is incredibly important. It matters that scientific creationism is an American doctrine that emerges in an American context because the particular separation of church and state means that the state can't endorse a specific form of religion. And if you want to not teach Darwin in the classroom, you have to have an argument for why. And the argument for that earlier was it violates religious precepts, but you can't do that anymore when the 60s come around. And if you want to teach creationism in schools, you need to argue not that it's religious, but that it's scientific. So Mm. the authority of science is the basis to get around a legal problem that has emerged in reinterpreting the Constitution. And intelligent design is an attempt to patch up and fix creationism when it failed as a legal gambit and to provide a different form. Let me move on to the second category in the book, which you call hyper-politicized science. And you have Mm -hmm. three pretty grim examples of this, Aryan physics, Lysenkoism, and eugenics. Tell us briefly about those and, and where the politics comes in. Yeah, so I deliberately didn't want to call it politicized science because lots of science is politicized. And that's not enough to get it labeled or tarnished with this brush of pseudoscience. The case of Aryan physics is an excellent example of this, both because it exemplifies the point and it's a little counterintuitive. Two Nobel Prize winning physicists, Philipp Lenard and Johannes Stark, both Germans, early supporters of Adolf Hitler, old fighters in this framework, they, for many decades, had started to feel alienated from the physics community. And come 1933, when the Nazis take power, they think they can now bring back the physics they like. The physics they like is experimental. It is not hyper-mathematical, which is what has happened with quantum theory and relativity. And, and this is crucial for them, it's not Jewish. They associate the transformations with relativity theory and quantum theory with an influx of Jewish theoretical physicists. Most importantly for them is that both of those doctrines, quantum theory and relativity, are associated with Einstein. And Einstein is toxic to the Nazi regime for basically every reason. He's a pacifist, he's Jewish, he's internationalist, he's socialist, he's super popular, he hates them. So Stark and Lenard really had issues with Einstein for a long time. So they try to create a new kind of physics, a German physics, which purges all of this, what they call Jewish physics, out of the frame. It looks a lot like Newtonian physics around 1800. So it it is an old-fashioned kind of classical physics, It works in all the places where classical physics works. There are many things you want to do in a modern world that 
classical physics doesn't work for. They want to get this in the schools. They want to get this in universities, and they want to get rid of quantum theory and relativity from within Germany. And that fails because there are enough physicists in Germany who are like, this is nonsense, and they manage to persuade the state we need to do quantum physics if you want us to do things like make electrical devices or work on nuclear programs. We need this science. Mm. And they end up with a compromise, which is you can teach all the science you want, just don't mention Einstein's name. Right. And that's the deal. Yeah. So it's hyper-politicized, but in the end, it collapses. The case of uh, Lysenkoism in the Soviet Union is grimmer because it actually succeeds for a while. Trofim Lysenko is a Ukrainian agronomist. He's born in around 1898. And so he has the same massive social and educational mobility that a son of a peasant would be exposed to with the Bolshevik Revolution. And he gets an agronomist education, and he starts doing experiments with plants. And he claims that by treating plants in a certain way, like rubbing them with ice, he can adapt them to cold and make them grow better in cold climates, which matters in Russian agriculture. And in particular, that that adaptation can be inherited. So this is a form of inheritance of acquired characteristics, which was a science in the early 19th century. But it very much passed out of fashion, hadn't it? Very much passed out. With the rise of Mendelian genetics, that's just not how we think heredity works. And that was the dominant theory also in the Soviet Union in the 1930s. And so you had these geneticists, these Mendelian geneticists, and these Lysenkoists. They were fighting back and forth and back and forth. It goes on through the war, and then in 1948, Stalin makes a decision that he's going to back Lysenko and criminalize, ban Mendelian genetics. Mm. So from 1948 till 1965, which is when Lysenko falls, it's considered pseudoscientific to work on Mendelian genetics. The geneticists, many of them are fired. No one is shot in this period, but they do lose their employment. Lysenko really does eradicate genetics for the most part within the Soviet Union for a period of over 15 years. Mm. It's a significant period of time, and it hobbles the development of molecular biology and many other fields in the Soviet Union for a while. Mm. So that's another case, hyper-politicized, with the state endorsing a theory that is considered by most of the relevant scientific community as incorrect. Yes. And political ideology distorting and reshaping, and in the case of Russia and Lysenkoism, obliterating one particular legitimate path of scientific research. Exactly. Eugenics is a case where that happens in a democracy, and it happens more in the US than the UK. By the 1920s, it's clear that for technical reasons having to do with gene frequencies and populations, you can't eradicate disease by just selective breeding, by sterilizing certain people or by encouraging other people to breed. It won't do the thing they say it will do. That said, you get an increase in sterilizations in the 1920s with democratic societies saying, we decide who are unfit and those unfit people shouldn't breed. And that continues until basically the Holocaust discredits the idea. I want to ask about one other category that you draw out. And this third category is anti-establishment science. And and science, Mm -hmm. I guess, is in scare quotes there. You name a a number. You've mentioned phrenology already. There's UFOlogy. There's flat earthism in there. These are pseudoscientific disciplines, if disciplines is the right word, whose energy comes from the conviction that somehow or other they have realised, stumbled upon a truth that the authorities want to suppress. 
That's right. I should qualify that they don't think they're pseudoscientists, right? They think they're scientists. They are doing science and that the establishment is doing pseudoscience. But the establishment has more power and is suppressing the truth. A lot of these counter-establishment sciences, anti-establishment sciences, have conspiracy theoretic components to them where they think there is a truth that is being suppressed by the establishment. Another thing that's fascinating about them is they mimic the establishment. If you think, what is a science? Well, we're a science. We who study Bigfoot or we who study the Loch Ness Monster, we are scientists. Scientists have journals. They have footnotes. They uh, publish graphs. They have conferences, and these sciences do the same thing. They create the same structures that a science would have. They just have totally different content. And part of their content is a rejection of the establishment. Creationism is the most elaborated of these because it's the best funded, the best organized. It can rely on a long tradition of very well-organized evangelical church structures and educational programs. And there are PhDs in it. There are their own journals. The journals look identical to a geology journal. You would not be able to tell. They're not littered with quotations to Genesis. That's mm. not how they argue. Yeah. The anti-establishment category bleeds over into something that's called denialism, doesn't it? Where yeah. there are certain institutions whose job is to sow doubt about accepted science, the most famous ones being tobacco and climate change. Yeah. It's interesting you juxtapose them. I actually hadn't thought about how close they are. They are close, but there's a distinct difference. The denialist claims there is an establishment theory. We think it's probably wrong, but we're not certain. And because we're not certain, we need to do a lot more research. And their function is to sow uncertainty so that there's no closure on that scientific claim, which will then forestall public regulation, whether it is of acid rain or ozone chemicals or tobacco smoke or fossil fuel consumption. They do share something very clear with the counter-establishment stuff in that they think the establishment is wrong, but they don't put themselves outside the establishment. They don't say, we think you're all corrupt and we're going to create our alternative that people should pick instead. They say, we're part of the establishment. We have the same credentials as you. We have the same publications as you. And we have the same methods as you. We believe that we should minimize uncertainty. Mm. And you want to go ahead, you're being unscientific, not pseudoscientific, but unscientific in jumping to conclusions. And so let's do more research. Yeah. And they sow more doubt. But it's important that they think of themselves and present themselves as not being alien to the mainstream. Again, it's sitting under the authority of mainstream science, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Where do you think the anti-vax movement sits within this field? You have to situate the anti-vax people into, I would say, at least two different blocks. The first is what emerged in the late, very late 1990s with the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, the MMR vaccine. Andrew Wakefield and and that research. Yes, yes. Andrew Wakefield and his collaborators published an article in The Lancet, one of the leading British medical journals, saying that there seemed to be a connection between this vaccine and autism. First of all, many of the collaborators rescinded their support, and then The Lancet withdrew it. But the movement grew. It tended to be a largely left-leaning movement of people who were, in this case, very heavily uh, mothers who were worried about their children or had autistic children and blamed the MMR vaccine. And that produced a skepticism around this particular vaccine. Now, 
How do we classify that? To some degree, it's vestigial science and that there was a scientific claim in the late 90s. And whenever someone says this isn't true, they say, but look at this article in The Lancet. They don't notice that it's been retracted or they don't care that it's been retracted. The scientific claim did exist in the past and they can pull it forward. Andrew Wakefield is still promulgating this particular view, even though he has uh, lost his medical license. However, with COVID, anti-vax has taken on very different, highly polarized, much more political, and in many ways hyper-politicized, you might say, stances, where the vaccine gets tied up in a sense of what your body is for, what your responsibilities are to the collective good. And it's just a different set of positions. It was about protecting children in its earlier incarnation, and now it's about personal autonomy and a rejection of elites who are telling you to do something else. So the movements bleed into each other. If I had to categorize it, I would say the earlier MMR form is vestigial. The current form is probably hyper-politicized. Yes, yes. A nice distinction. One other point before we begin to draw our strands together. These are examples of science. I mean, it's very clearly science, and it's within the mainstream, and it's within all the authority structures of science, and yet it is nonetheless really problematic. I'm talking there about specific examples of, of serial fraud. At a less dramatic level, there is a, a real problem in some of the psychology journals in particular around the inability to replicate different scientific experiments. That further problematizes these categories, doesn't it? I think it problematizes the categories, but it also contains a key to sort of seeing what is going on, which is the fundamental characteristic of science as we have organized it now is it's incredibly dynamic. It's an expensive activity. It requires tremendous education to get involved and in it. But once you're in it, the way you build a reputation, the way you continue your career, the way you make new findings is you constantly go through what is being discussed and try to find mistakes in it and try to find a new way forward. And the way you do that is highly adversarial. It involves you picking out something that people believe now and trying to knock it down. And if you succeed, then people will try to knock you down. And that's how things move forward. In that particular climate, there's a lot of pressure on researchers to constantly produce results quickly and ideally solidly. But since there's so much being produced, you might think, well, I don't have the results yet, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. So if I just fabricate this here, in about a year, someone will have discovered the real thing and I'll get credit for being the one who found it first, even though nobody could replicate my particular finding. That's a gamble. You could see how someone who was pressured took that gamble, but it is a choice that is in many ways enabled by this frenetic, high-churn, adversarial mm. climate we have. And the replication crisis is part of that too. You think you have a result, you publish it as quickly as you can, you didn't double and triple check it. And if it makes it through peer review, which because of the heavy churn it might, you end up with these problems. Mm. So I think of the fringe sciences as being a byproduct of science behaving as we organized it to do. It's an after effect. And the replication crisis and the fraud claims are similar to that. They are consequences of how we have structured our scientific system. Mm -hmm. And we can either try to reform the scientific system, or we can just learn to live with a certain amount of this as noise. Yeah. There is an interesting paradox within this whole debate. I picked this up because you mentioned how science is adversarial. By definition, mm -hmm. that's how it proceeds. 
I've spent a lot of time in the last year or so interviewing over 100 or so practicing scientists and philosophers of science and sociologists of science for a, a research project on science and religion we're doing at Theos. And one of the really interesting things that emerged from those interviews is the way in which many of my interviewees said there's a weird disconnect between what I know goes on in science, which is developing, it's tentative, it's adversarial, and the wider public perception whereby scientific is used as a synonym for truthful. And it's so difficult to make that connection between what is the reality of the tentative, hesitant, combative practice of science on the one hand, and the perception that this is established, it is true. That is a serious issue. And it's an issue that you might think scientists would be happy with because they'd be like, well, you know, I know that it's messy in the lab, but once I leave the lab, people respect what I do and they take what I say seriously. But it also means that when you change your mind, like COVID is not communicable by air. Oh, yes, it is. You shouldn't wear masks. Oh, yes, you should. Those are part of the normal process of science moving along. It's, it's We change our minds. We forget better data. We reevaluate our priors. We come up with new arguments. But if people are conditioned to think, oh, science is absolutely true, then when a scientist says something like, I know you think dinosaurs were scaly reptiles, but actually they had feathers. Or I know you grew up thinking Pluto was a planet, but it's not. That uh, change of mind makes people think, well, they're just making it up. Mm. And a byproduct of the high respect that science has culturally is a sort of confinement so that scientists can't publicly discuss uncertainty and dynamism. Mm. It's a real issue. Yeah. I mean, we shouldn't exaggerate the extent to which people often use the word crisis with mm-hmm. abandonment and with replication crisis and the public trust in science crisis. Well, you know, the data show that scientists are by and large trusted a great deal more than a whole load of other people in society. So we shouldn't exaggerate the problems here. But I'm conscious almost of a nervousness of having this conversation because what we've been doing so far in our discussion is questioning the boundaries between science and pseudoscience. That's what your book is about. At the same time, when you have sometimes well-funded, sometimes very loud bodies of people that are casting aspersions on science that is well-established, you kind of feel, well, I don't want to say anything that might in any way give them solace. Yes. So how do we go about getting to the recognition that science is a problematic and a moving and a subtle category without giving solace to those who want to reject established conclusions altogether? I think that there's a bind that scientists get into where they're like, there's a loud flat earther on the street corner. I can go up and heckle them and debunk them. I probably won't change their minds, but maybe I'll change someone else's mind, but it will take a lot of effort and energy. And the very act of doing it is going to give them credibility. And so do I invest the time or do I not? And I think that produces a difficulty, which is it makes us flatten all of the various fringe movements and treat them equally. And they're not all equal. Some mm. of them, flat earth, I would say, the, any phrenologists running around, astrology, astrology is very popular. I don't think it's very dangerous. Mm. Um, so you don't have to debunk everything equally or debunk nothing at all. You can say some of these are public health crises. Mm. And so what we're going to do is focus on them and try and debunk them. And I think we can do that by saying, look, science is an uncertain enterprise. It's a human enterprise. It's fallible. But it has procedures in it that error correct. 
They do try to dig these things out, but you you can't have an overinflated sense of how precise it is because we're learning as things are going on, but we're seeing improvements and this is how we do it. That's not true for this particular movement. This anti-vax movement does not have that quality and it's dangerous. Yes. Or climate change denial is the other one that's actually dangerous. And I think if we reallocated our attention and categorized various movements differently, I think the scientific community could think about how to change its communication strategy to focus on how to communicate uncertainty better and how to target particular doctrines and say, I'm not going to worry about spoon bending or parapsychology. It'll get laughs if I do that on the news, but I don't want to do that. Mm. I want to focus on the cases that really matter. So not all fringe movements are equal, effectively. Some of them demand much more serious attention than others. Difficult question. Do you think that participation in these fringe movements, or indeed the number of fringe movements, is increasing? Uh, It's a very hard question to answer. It depends what participation means. But there's always been a lot of interest in this stuff. It just used to be atomized. And so there were people who were trying to develop anti-Einsteinian theories of gravity in their basement. They would just like spend the evenings reading stuff up or they had their own theory about a new kind of animal that lived in the woods or they had theories about werewolves and stuff like that. And that stuff has been around and it's mostly been small groups of people. Sometimes they're in correspondence by mail with other people. What the internet has done is make it very visible that those communities exist and enable people to talk across broader distances. I don't know if it has increased the interest in it. The interest that compels someone to join a fringe science movement, there's multiple aspects of that. One is you're interested in science. And somehow along the way, you became convinced that there actually is a pleosaur living in Loch Ness. What brought you there was an interest in natural history and an interest in animals. So that interest is widespread. The question is how visible is that community for certain movements like creationism, we have a lot of material from the 19th century uh, and the early 20th century showing us how those movements worked because mm-hmm. other institutions preserved those documents. But it's hard to measure how big the interest was in the past. So I think the accessibility is higher. I don't know if the prevalence is higher. I guess one of the factors that is important is this hyper-politicization or indeed general politicization. And we are living in an age that is perhaps not hyper-politicised, but certainly there are divisions there. And that feeds into creation science today, it feeds into the anti-vax movement, it feeds into anti-climate change. So part of me wonders whether we might see an increase of this because it would be within the interests of hyper-politicised groups to seize on a kind of pseudoscience and then use it for their ends. That could be the case. I mean, this was the motivation for Stalin, part of the motivation for Stalin to endorse Lysenkoism. What he wanted was to present that the Soviet Union has its own economy, its own politics, its own literature, and its own science. And if he endorsed the Mendelians, that would be the same science as everybody else. And he wanted to demonstrate the distinctiveness. And it could become a form of branding, but it's not obvious that it's spread throughout the population very broadly. It could happen now, given different media environment and in an age of democratic buy-in, it could become that kind of thing. I should say that creationism is one of those doctrines that I actually am less worried about, in that in seventh grade, I was taught creationism in my public school. It was illegal to do so, but the guy did it anyway. 
I think I turned out okay. <laughs> it was a little weird, and then it was over, and then, you know, people moved on. There are questions about how certain doctrines affect the public order. So even if you end up with something like creationism becomes doctrinaire for, say, the Republican Party in the U.S., which I don't think is happening now, but let's imagine that. It's not obvious that that would be destructive in a way that trying to end measles vaccination would be destructive. Mm. And I think that, and that would be a source of tremendous concern. I want us to end by going back to where we began about how one does demarcate science and pseudoscience. Is there any effective way of demarking the two? Not philosophically. Uh, I think that that is hard to do. Basically, because science isn't one thing. It's a bunch of different sub-disciplines with different methods and approaches. You're not going to find a simple logical formulation or a simple one-line test that instantly cleaves the sciences from the pseudosciences. What it will do is include some of the things that are commonly thought of as pseudosciences as sciences, and it will take some things that are sciences and put them on the other end. The most famous of these is Karl Popper's theory of falsifiability, that a pseudoscience cannot articulate a statement that will prove itself false. But there are plenty of so-called pseudosciences that are perfectly falsifiable. So I don't think you'll find anything global. I think you might find things within sub-disciplines where there's a very clear agreement on methods and assumptions. And when someone's not playing by those rules, you can say, okay, that's out of bounds here. But I don't think you're going to find a global philosophical criterion. Mm. What you will find is a social criterion, which is what does the establishment science say is in and out? That's messy. No one likes that because that's like relying on proxies, like who's credentialed, who has a PhD, who is teaching at Oxford. But that is, in fact, how demarcation is done today. We trust the establishment yeah. to tell us that. It's not clean, but I think that's where we are. We live in a world where science is very important and science is conducted by humans. And mm. we have all sorts of qualities that are a little rough around the edges. That's a lovely place to end. The book is called On the Fringe, Where Science Meets Pseudoscience. Michael Gordon, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Next week... I'll be speaking to Nina Power about her book, What Do Men Want? I think we need to think again about how we are completely enmeshed with each other and, and often dependent on each other, whether we're children or whether we're sick or whether we're elderly. Actually, the part of our life in which we are truly independent, let's say, is very small. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.